right. Welcome, everybody, to our weekly COVID-19 update. Today, we are joined by Acting Cabinet Secretary Dr. David Scrace, uh, Deputy Cabinet Secretary Dr. Laura Patajone, and we're also joined by Acting Secretary from the Department of Workforce Solutions, Ricky Certina. And with that, I will turn it over to Dr. Scrace. Uh, we'd like to thank you all for tuning in today and coming back. We're as we've done in the past, but not real recently, going to focus on another area uh, in the pandemic that isn't about viruses, but it's about the effect of the pandemic on the workforce. And so we're really pleased to have Acting Secretary uh, Ricky Cerna here with us today, and he's going to walk us through an overview of uh, what we're looking at as federal benefits wind down and we work to bring New Mexicans back to work. And with that, and without any further ado, uh, Ricky, take it away. Thank you, Dr. Schrace. I appreciate the introduction and more importantly, the invitation to join you uh, this afternoon. I look forward to the updates, uh, sharing updates and, and answering any questions that may come. Um, <clears throat> if uh, Great, thank you. I think this first slide is important in, in kind of setting the stage for uh, the presentation of least mine today, um, you'll see here what unemployment rate has done um, going back <clears throat> going back several months uh, to January 2020, um, how we fare relative to the rest of the nation and, and where we were um, as recent as last month, August of uh, 2021 at 5.2. In a little bit, I'll show um, uh, the, these rates by county. I think what's important to underscore here is that um, there is to be sure a correlation between uh, the number of New Mexicans on unemployment insurance benefits and the total unemployment rate, employment rate, but uh, it's not a direct correlation. I'll give you an example. The official unemployment rate um, and the number of unemployed is really based on uh, the current population survey that's administered by the Census Bureau on a monthly basis. So certainly, um, there are individuals who are not working that aren't currently receiving unemployment benefits. Uh, so that's a direct instance, right, in which uh, the number of claimants doesn't necessarily reflect the number of those who are currently unemployed. So um, uh, just to kind of recap, in June of 2021, uh, the Department of Workforce Solutions was paying about uh, more than 77,000 claimants on multiple programs. Um, then if you take a look at August uh, 30 of 2021, this date is important for us because it represents the last full week prior to the expiration of federal extension benefits. Uh, so on August 30th, uh, about 67,000 claimants were receiving benefits. Um, shortly thereafter, on September 5th, we had multiple uh, federal extension programs expire. Uh, they included a uh, pandemic unemployment assistance program uh, newly developed to assist uh, self-employed gig economy workers. Federal pandemic unemployment compensation ended. That was otherwise known as the $300 a week supplemental payment to individuals eligible for a program. Um, pandemic, employment, uh, pandemic employment compensation uh, provided additional benefit weeks to claimants. And then finally, uh, mixed burners on employment compensation provided um, uh, an additional $100 per week for those who were eligible for both W-2 wage work and, and self-employment work. So in total, about 50,000 claimants uh, came off program eligibility um, on September 5th. And so now on a 
We're fourth. Again, looking back three weeks, we have just over uh, 18,000 claimants on benefits over that three-week period. Uh, just over 10,000 of them on standard unemployment benefits, which is what the department administers uh, under under all normal circumstances. And then about 7,500 of them are receiving benefits on federal extension benefits too. And uh, the state is required to offer federal extension benefits um, as um, as a measure when our unemployment rate reaches a certain level. Um, this again, um, show this slide again represents um, how we're doing right now relative to the US in terms of a seasonally adjusted unemployment rate. Um, the next few slides, in fact, I'm gonna show is gonna represent data that, that's certainly driving decisions for us at the department, specifically in the area of employment and reemployment services and priorities. As you'll see here um, in July of 2021, the, the unemployment rate for the state was 7.6, it's dropped to 7.2. And over uh, the past year, August 2020 to August 2021, it's come down by 2.1% uh, compared to 3.2% uh, nationally. And so, um, you know, beyond uh, claims by workforce region, we're looking for trends, right? Not just are we looking to see what regions of the state are doing well um, relative to um, claimants coming off of unemployment insurance benefits. We're also looking at uh, various other indicators that might suggest we need to provide additional services, for example, to females versus males, um, certain uh, age groups. And then certainly we're looking at data uh, based on educational attainment and the impact that the economic downturn had on them. Uh, very quickly here on this slide, uh, we're looking for resiliency by region, and you'll see that the central region um, has, has seen the highest decrease in total claims um, over the period August 4 to, uh, to October 4th. And so that's they're down by about 72.8% of claimants receiving in those counties. Um, our data is uh, suggesting that the Southwest region is struggling a little bit more than other regions across the state. Um, to reduce percentage-wise the number of individuals receiving benefits. So um, it's important to note here that New Mexico traditionally struggles with uh, recession or economic downturn recovery, and that has a lot to do with our industry mix and, and our need to kind of diversify um, in, in terms of industries that are providing jobs. Uh, for example, the 09 recession, the 09 recession in terms of total employment, took nine, 10 years to recover. We saw about four or five very strong months before uh, the, you know, the pandemic hit. Um, so uh, we've got uh, some work to do. I think there's gonna be a, a time period that uh, we're gonna see how uh, the pandemic impacted this economic downturn relative to other recessions. Um, it is also important to know because of the amount of federal jobs and resources coming into the state, New Mexico does okay relative to other states during an economic recession. So although the impact isn't as great relative to other states, it's important to note that our recovery, right, will likely will take uh, several months. Uh, another thing to note, of course, is this is in part due to uh, our governor's leadership in, in ensuring, right, that our economic recovery is calculated and that what we're doing also uh, economically is also working in parallel with what we know, uh, research and, and a public health perspective. So um, that, that those are important factors that don't typically come into play during uh, a normal economic downturn. Um, another bit of data that's very important to us is understanding how um, industries are bouncing back uh, from an economic downturn. This slide right here 
is uh, using data uh, from claimants uh, three weeks back from um, October 4th. So what we're looking at here on this pie chart is a distribution of UI claimants based on the last occupation. Um, they, um, they, were, um, uh, they were working in prior to receiving benefits. So um, the occupations with the largest percentage um, and, and decrease of claims um, since um, uh, August 2nd include art and design, education and training, personal uh, care. So what we're looking at, of course, is a, an understanding of where we need to provide additional support. Um, unfortunately, what we cannot do at this time is understand whether or not these workers are going back into that last occupation or if they're pivoting professionally and moving into um, other industries. Um, once uh, employers begin to report wages for the quarter that ended in September, we'll get a better sense of where these claimants ended up in terms of an occupation and industry and whether or not there was uh, mobility from New Mexico to other states. So uh, right now what we're doing is looking to see um, what industries and occupations are doing well, which are not, and where we need to focus um, our assistance for employers getting workers either connected with them directly or getting workers cross-trained and skilled up to, to do the work that um, they're looking for them to do. I think it's important for us to um, uh, share the health of the, an update on the health of the trust fund. Um, here, uh, this slide right here shows the health going back to July 12th of 2021. As you all may be aware, the uh, UI trust fund uh, was impacted significantly as a result of the pandemic. Um, uh, again, thanks to uh, Governor Luhan Grisham, the trust fund was restored to pre-pandemic levels at the end of June 2021. And you'll see here beginning in July that the, the health reached uh, early 2021, I'm sorry, early 2020 uh, fund balances. Right now of the total claimants we have accessing benefits, um, our, our regular uh, state unemployment insurance benefits are certainly um, being paid for from the fund. Of those claimants that are on federal extended benefits, 50% of their weekly benefits are coming from the trust fund and the other 50% are being reimbursed by, um, by USDOL. So we, we certainly um, have been monitoring very closely the trust fund. The balance um, does play a significant role in unemployment um, insurance tax rates for employers. Um, those rates are currently um, being calculated and we'll release them to employers in November keeping in mind that there'll be some data omission requirements that we'll continue to put into place to further help employers um, that, um, that saw benefit chargers, charges over the course of the pandemic. Um, something that we've been struggling with um, over the, the past couple of years has been um, fraud, uh, unemployment insurance fraud. And, um, and certainly this has not been limited to unemployment insurance claimants. Um, I think of several New Mexicans, those that have never filed a claim before in their work history have, have uh, intersected in some point with some sort of uh, scam that's attempted to obtain their personal information, identity theft, um, et cetera. So uh, we wanted to be sure to put a slide in here to remind everyone of a couple of things. Uh, first of all, uh, one of the most foundational requirements for unemployment insurance claimants is that they are actively seeking work and able and available to accept suitable work if offered. So if you're an employer or if you're aware of someone that is not complying with that requirement and is receiving unemployment insurance benefits, 
this link here, which is our website forward slash report refusal of suitable work. That's a, that's a place on our website where you can report a claimant for not accepting work. Um, uh, and, uh, and of course, then uh, there would be an adverse impact to their benefit eligibility. We also we want to remind everybody that uh, fraudsters continue to use tools like text messages, emails, and phone calls to obtain information either about your claim, if you are a claimant, or uh, to obtain private information that might otherwise be used to file a claim. Um, so beginning end of July, the Department of Workforce Solutions stopped uh, using text messages to communicate with claimants. So if you do receive a text message um, indicating that there's information they need for your claim, uh, don't be alarmed. Please don't click on any of the links that that text message might provide for you. Um, we, we will not use text messages to communicate with you if you are a claimant. And if you're not a claimant um, and receive a text message, um, they're phishing attempts and a claim has not been filed on your behalf. Um, emails, phone calls are also being used. Um, and so if uh, you do get an email or a phone call and you're unsure if those are coming from us, do not ever give out social security numbers, passwords to any accounts, UI or otherwise or any personal banking information. So our staff will never email uh, a claimant or a New Mexican and ask for a social security number, a password or any banking information. So if you're being asked for that, then, then you know it's a scam and, um, and, and please respond and certainly don't act the same way. Uh, there are other forms of unemployment insurance fraud that we wanna to bring to your attention and ask for your help with. Um, uh, again, uh, UI claimants are required to conduct work searches every week that they certify for benefits. If, um, if you're aware of individuals that are not doing that in a sincere way, um, if, you have, if you're aware of individuals that are receiving benefits and not reporting cash wages, or individuals who are victims of, or who are using identity theft as the tactic for obtaining fraudulently benefits, please use the, the link provided there, which is our website forward slash identity theft. And uh, we'll quickly capture information that um, um, that's necessary to investigate those individuals and, and certainly to, um, uh, to stop benefit payments from going out on fraudulent claims. On, on this slide here, I'm shifting gears slightly, certainly the focus of our work since September 5th has been um, uh, primarily on, on getting New Mexicans back to work. So we're really trying to understand, you know, where job vacancies are across the state, um, the kinds of skills uh, and education and training necessary to do this work. And, and then of course the unemployed uh, workforce and, and identifying the gap and how we can close it so that these, these individuals can become um, qualified for these jobs. So you'll see here at the very top, um, healthcare and social assistance, over 13,000 job openings, um, educational services, and, and all the way down to wholesale trade, over uh, 1,200 uh, vacant open positions that are being advertised anywhere online in, uh, in, uh, for New Mexico. You'll see that change over time going back to 2008 from just over 40,000 jobs to more than 80,000 jobs. Um, and it's important to note that in just the past year as well, New Mexico has seen job growth, over 30,000 new jobs um, in the state of New Mexico. Um, and so uh, we're certainly uh, identifying right with individual employers and understanding what they need and making direct referrals and connections. And I'll, and I'll uh, share an example here. 
Um, it has been a major priority for us over the past several months to really focus on uh, helping tourism and hospitality related employers. And we're working closely, the department is working closely with tourism department, uh, ECEC, the early childhood department and economic development department to really craft strategies that will help restaurants and hotel owners and ski bases really ramp up and identify with workers that um, that will meet their minimum qualifications and experience history. And so um, this is just one of several measures that bring agencies together uh, to work with employers to, to really connect them with the kind of workforce, but more importantly, to also help that workforce overcome barriers, for example, providing um, childcare assistance, assisting employers with developing um, after school tutoring spaces for, for children of their workers so that uh, they can continue to work so uh, we're working very closely with uh, various employers. In fact, just yesterday, we met with several hotel and restaurant owners across the state to really float some of the tactics that we have uh, in mind and get their feedback on, on how effective they, they believe they'll be. Uh, and in addition to um, direct hiring and local hiring initiatives, um, we expect that we can do some things to really uh, lift um, the, the financial cost that's coming with ramping up quickly. Um, so. Uh, we look forward to being able to report on the, the outcomes of some of those measures. Um, uh, the New Mexico Workforce Connections offices um, uh, are, are really one-stop shops and hubs for New Mexicans. We have 23 Workforce Connection Centers across the state. The best way to describe these centers are really one-stop shops where job seekers and employers come for whatever assistance they need to get to work, right, or to do work. Um, so over the last several months, we, of course, have been doing things a little differently. Um, and uh, right now we're engaged in a whole lot more direct hiring events for employers and communities. And, and that means that we're getting out to communities, meeting with employers, uh, some of them right specific to an industry, some of them entire communities. For example, we'll be in Roswell later on this month to meet with several employers to talk about what their recruitment and hiring challenges have been. And, and prior to uh, that discussion, we'll do some marketing so that we can better understand, right, what the, the workforce pool looks like. And then after we meet with them, we'll, we'll start having direct hiring events in those communities. We'll leverage the, the information we have about workers that were on benefits prior to September uh, fourth expiration of federal programs. We'll be using data that we have right now with claimants that are currently receiving benefits. And our staff will be able to, to do outreach to those claimants locally, um, align their skill sets and previous work experience with what these employers are looking for, and, and really make those direct connections. Um, our offices, our workforce connection centers, provide in-person services. And that includes a space and, and computer lab where job seekers can come in and, and, and log into our job system and look for work. Um, that includes direct career counseling, whether that means assistance with resume development, interview skill development, letter of interest development, and overcoming any other barriers like childcare, transportation, or other supportive services that are necessary to really get New Mexicans connected with work. Um, for employers, we're doing a tremendous amount of applicant recruitment and customized screening which means that not only are we, are we using our workforce connection online system to help promote your jobs, but when workers come into our system, right, we're able to match them with what you're looking for. And in some instances, an employer may request that we conduct initial interviews. They may request that we conduct initial, you know, pre-employment screenings or tests. 
So we can do that work for you all as employers to be sure that um, not only are we leveraging the, the data we have on job seekers, but this is also something that uh, one less thing that employers have to worry about as they're ramping up, right, and really start starting to uh, to see economic recovery. Uh, we also, at the Department of Workforce Solutions, manage a, a very robust um, a job sim- system for both employers and job seekers. Um, that system, of course, is the system that provides access to those 80,000 plus vacancies that we shared in a previous slide. Uh, we have a resume builder there um, that that is used like a virtual recruiter which means that we push notifications to job seekers when a, when a position becomes open um, in, their, in their region. It connects them and matches them with minimum uh, requirements and a job seeker's skill set, past employment, education levels. So uh, for employers, it'll do the same. It'll push notifications when a job seeker is system and matches with uh, a vacancy that you currently have. So um, we, we certainly uh, hope that uh, job seekers and employers will leverage those tools uh, in addition to the others on this slide to, to really uh, close the gap in workforce. And uh, the website address is here again, um, our DWS website forward slash job seekers will get you to um, that tool where uh, you all can register to access these resources. Uh, over the past several months, uh, again, we've been working with other agencies, namely the Higher Education Department, to launch a project we refer to as Ready New Mexico. Uh, we anticipated surely that as the economy reopened, that a number of workers across the state were going to need, you know, a combination of resources to really overcome barriers and other challenges to getting back to work. And some of those barriers were going to include, you know, retraining, retooling, um, obtaining skills they didn't have previously. Um, information about childcare assistance, updates about COVID safe practices and things like that. And from that came the website uh, ready.nm.gov, which really centralizes, right, the jobs which functions by county. What we've done is actually uh, developed a fund that supports post-secondary institutions in developing um, short-term boot camp training opportunities that prepare workers for jobs that are currently vacant across the state. Um, we connect you with adult education services, post-secondary programs from, um, from certificate programs through um, you know, baccalaureate and graduate degrees. It's a one-stop shop that also includes information about financial aid, apprenticeships for employers. It's how you access um, you know, our workforce connection centers for hiring assistance. And all of this information, of course, is wrapped around by data on labor market, um, jobs outlook, careers outlook, so that we know that the decisions we're helping job seekers make is really rooted in an occupation or a career pathway that that is promising for for the long term. Um, This project also yielded uh, a total number. So you saw earlier in the map, uh, workforce connection centers across the state. This toll-free number here, 800-303-3599, is actually the number that'll get you connected with a career consultant immediately. So whether you're an employer, a job seeker, calling this number will get you uh, connected with one of our career consultants across the state. And whether we move you to an in-person appointment, whether we move you to a virtual um, discussion, we can get you connected very quickly to someone no matter where they're at. And by doing this, not only have we made it more easy to access our services, but now we can provide better access to communities where there isn't a workforce connection center that one you know, might have to drive, you know, uh, miles to, uh, to visit. So the ready.nm.gov has centralized a tremendous amount of resources for employers and job seekers. And we've actually now 
been able to utilize the toll-free number and the site live chat feature to expand access to your career consultations and, and business outreach uh, across the state. And so uh, we, we certainly are, are, are tracking the activity and the referrals that we're making through this project. And, and we look forward to helping you connect with employers or connect with jobs. And I think that wraps things up. I'm going to turn things over um, uh, to Dr. Space, and he'll introduce the next presenter. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much, Ricky, for bringing this valuable data and also uh, hoping that our media partners will find a lot of interest in the data, the increase in jobs, the, the, the fact that there are, are a lot of jobs out there for folks. We're going to move into our COVID segment next with Laura updating us on vaccines, and I'll do my wrap-up on cases, hospital uh, use, and treatments. So, Laura. Hey, great. Thank you so much. Um, hey, welcome, everybody, today, and I'm uh, really glad to be here today to give the vaccine update. So here's our vaccine progress update. This is amazing because 80.4 of New Mexicans 18 and over, um, as well as 64.4% of 12 to 17-year-olds have received at least one dose. That is amazing. And then 71.1% of New Mexicans um, and 55.3% of 12 to 17 year olds are fully vaccinated. So we're so excited about that because the more we vaccinate, the more we keep people from getting sick, we keep our kids in school, keep our economies open and keep people out of hospitals. Um, so we're excited about that. Um, next slide. Um, we are worried though still about people who are still not vaccinated and at risk. Um, at the Department of Health, we do track um, based on race, ethnicity, and also social vulnerability index. This just shows um, that uh, Hispanic and Latino uh, populations as well as African-American populations are less vaccinated than the 70%. So we wanna keep on working on that um, different ways, working with all of you in the community to keep on um, helping people gain trust and, uh, and feel comfortable with the vaccine. Next slide. Um, this is a pretty cool slide. Um, the darker shows uh, higher vaccination rates. So you can see New Mexico is kind of like a little island here in the United States, and you'd actually have to drive all the way to uh, the Northeast in order to get uh, to another place as vaccinated as New Mexico. So good job, New Mexico. Next slide. Um, so here's our booster dose updates. Um, October is going to be a really uh, busy month. Um, you can see here we're on the 6th and the Vaccine and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee, that's a long name, people just call it VRBAC. Um, on October 14th, they're going to be discussing about whether or not um, that we're going to get a booster for Moderna. The next day on the 15th, they're going to discuss the J&J &J booster as well as whether you can mix and match, meaning that if you got a Pfizer, could you get a Moderna booster or vice versa? Um, same with J&J. &J. And then on October 26th, um, they're discussing the EUA for five to 11 year olds. So uh, get ready, New Mexico, there's gonna be a lot going on with vaccines this month. Next slide. Um, one of the exciting things, I think, especially for kids and those of you who have little kids and you're worried about them, um, for, per the press, press release from Pfizer, Pfizer just submitted trial data to the FDA on September 28th. There were 2,268 participants, 5 to 11 years old, 
and they showed that the vaccine was safe and effective in children. That's one of the things we really want to make sure that our kids have a safe vaccine. Uh, if the FDA approves the EUA, it's likely to um, be that we start vaccinations for kids in late October and early November. Uh, the actual trial data is not available yet, but the one exciting thing, especially for those out there who are pediatricians or family physicians, is that we're expecting longer refrigerator storage time for these vaccines and smaller numbers of vials per order. So you could actually give it to the kids in your, in your, um, in your practice. And uh, yeah, and that's how a lot of kids get their vaccines. So thanks to all of you out there who are vaccinating our kids. Next slide. Um, one of the things we do wanna start thinking about is really, um, who is willing to uh, vaccinate their kids. And th these were this was a hypothetical survey that was sent out to parents asking them about five to 11 year olds, would they get them vaccinated right away? And you can see um, for children ages five to 11, um, in July of 21, it was 26% of kids. And now we're at 34% of um, parents who are willing to get their five to 11 year olds vaccinated. So that's really exciting. I think we're gonna see more uh, increase when we actually have the vaccine ready and what we're working on, what our team is working on and what we hope all of you are, are looking at too is that light blue group, people who are gonna wait and see to see if we can um, kind of share with people, gain trust um, in the vaccine, answer people's questions. We're also gonna have a speakers bureau. So if anybody's interested in helping support us to have town halls, to let people know and, and just really answer questions for parents because it's it's understandable for parents when there's a new vaccine to, to be hesitant. But what we've seen is, is that it's very effective and still children are getting sick with COVID. Um, not as many get hospitalized, but they still can get hospitalized. Some can die. So we'd still want to protect our kids. Next slide. Um, here we also see that um, 12 to 15 year olds who had received their first dose, um, Hispanic and Latino populations are at 35% of kids getting vaccinated, um, African-American at 52%, and then um, the other groups are uh, white and um, uh, American Indian at 76 and 77%. So we still wanna keep on um, answering people's questions, building trust and getting our kids vaccinated when we can. So that's still our first priority is getting those first doses in. Next slide. Um, this is our update on the booster dose eligibility. So like we shared last week, we wanted to make sure that um, people who are older, people who are 65 and over, um, there's very few in residence in long-term care facilities, but 50 to 64 year olds with underlying medical conditions, if uh, that group could get vaccinated for first and give people some time. But what we've seen is that we didn't see the big stampede we saw when we had new vaccines, we actually saw a slower uptake. So um, we are opening it up to all the Mays who people who might um, might also are eligible, 18 to 49 year olds with underlying medical conditions and 18 to 64 year olds in high risk occupational and institutional settings. And um, just a little shout out today, we um, opened up a new vaccine site for people experiencing homelessness. Thanks a lot to our Northwest region, um, Jody Wagner and uh, Erica Flores who helped us get these vaccines set up. and. Uh, 
they had extra vaccines because only eight people got vaccinated. Uh, only four people got vaccinated. There are two more doses left. So I took one of them. I got vaccinated today because I am 50 over 50 and I have an underlying medical condition and I feel great. So um, those of you who are interested in getting a booster, go, go for it. It was, it was fine. Uh, next slide. Um, here's our booster dose data. So we had um, over 31,546 doses given since August 1st. So that was when we had the additional dose for immunocompromised people approved. That's the group that can get Pfizer or Moderna. And then we have people getting those doses. And then after 924, which was when booster doses were approved, um, there were 21,081 doses given since the 24th. Um, so that's great. Next slide. Um, we were worried of whether primary doses, more boosters were gonna be given than primaries, but you can see that the week before the booster dose was approved, we had a lot more primary than booster doses. And then the next week we had a little bit less primary and more boosters. But I think we think people are still getting their primary doses. So we want to keep on encouraging people because that's the best way to prevent hospitalizations and deaths. Um, one of the things people were worried about is that is that third dose can be worse than the second dose. And the data from uh, the CDC shows that actually second dose side effects can often be more intense than the first dose but the third dose side effects are very similar to the second dose. And it's really a sign that your body is building protection and it tends to go away in a few days. And these are just some common side effects. I have a little bit of pain in my arm, but that's about it. Next slide. Um, so Dr. Fauci recently shared um, how the booster dose really does provide further protection against COVID uh, from severe disease. And he comments that 12 days or more after the booster dose, uh, this is a study in Israel, that the rate of confirmed infection was lower in the booster dose group than the non-booster group by a factor of 11.3 and the rate of severe illness lower by a factor of 19.5. So just a little bit more evidence that shows that, you know, if you are in the should group, um, the booster dose can be effective. Next slide. Um, once again, full vaccination is still our first priority. And uh, this is some great evidence that just recently came out um, with the Health and Human Services Department showing that the COVID-19 vaccine once again saves lives and prevents hospitalizations and reduces infection in seniors. And this is so important because um, prior to the vaccines, 85% uh, of the people who died of COVID-19 in the US were over 65 years old. And they now show really clear evidence in seniors with Medicaid, Medicare that vaccinations were linked to a reduction in COVID of over a quarter million COVID cases, a reduction in 100,000 hospitalizations and 39,000 deaths among seniors. So we're really saving lives when we give the vaccine. Next slide. Um, so if you haven't been vaccinated or you want your booster, schedule your vaccine appointment at vaccinenewmexico.org today. Talk to your provider if you still have questions about the vaccine or talk to your friends. Um, schedule your vaccine uh, appointment with either your provider or a pharmacy or either on our app at vaccinenewmexico.org. And remember, you can get your flu shot at the same time as your COVID booster. Um, next slide. 
Um, we do have our call center and it really is, um, we encourage all New Mexicans who have access to internet to use the vaccinenewmexico.org and only use the call center for scheduling if you don't have access to website. Uh, the reason we stood up the call center for the scheduling is really to advance kind of vaccine equity by supporting people that don't have internet or don't have the capacity to schedule online. Um, we do Spanish speakers on option three or nine. And like I uh, shared last week, it's 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Monday through Sunday, every single day. So we really want people who have difficulty getting online to, to really use our um, call center. Next slide. And then um, once again, a plea to all providers who can uh, get the vaccine to, to really uh, sign up in our TakeCareNewMexico.org website. We're available to help you out. It's a good timing to get your flu and COVID again. Once again, uh, just you know, sharing that again. And um, medical providers, you guys are the number one trusted source for vaccine advice. And uh, yeah, we have smaller packages up to 10 weeks in a refrigerator. And we just thank all of you for all you're doing for New Mexico. And good job, everybody. And I'm now going to turn over to, and I just also want to give a shout out to our amazing vaccine team that has been out there working all this data and um, putting together a plan for our five to 11 year olds. And I want to turn this over to our amazing secretary, uh, David Grace. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Laura. Thank you, Ricky. I, I did want to just mention, I think it's a testimony to leadership that Laura had the option of getting a booster today at, four hours before a press conference and didn't think twice, just got the shot. So I'm scheduled to get mine this evening uh, after the press conference, because that was the only time I could do it. And uh, uh, we do encourage people, particularly with risk factors or older. I like the way Laura said she was over 50. So I'm gonna say that too, I'm over 50. And uh, uh, encourage you to really think about getting the vaccine. Next slide, Brianna, please. Uh, this is our typical case curve, and we have some some explaining to do today about a trend that uh, none of us really like. Uh, this is the number of cases per day, averaged over seven days by the date of specimen collection. Uh, this was our big surge last winter in the middle, but now we're out way over to the right. And you can see our delta curve went up pretty steeply, and it's not coming down. In fact, it's plateaued. It's really pretty much a flat line. And that's a big problem for New Mexico, uh, New Mexicans and our hospitals. In the next slide, we blow up those last four or five weeks uh, into just, so this starts August 24th. And you can see this trend line here is about as horizontal as it could be. This gray area, you know, we, we backfill these as we get additional test results. So ignore that. but. We are in, we are not decreasing the number of cases. And that's a huge problem because of the state that our hospitals are in uh, and have been in all this whole time. Next slide, please. Uh, the state is a little bit redder than it was last week. Not that it could get that much redder than it is now, but you can see it's a little bit redder. And so uh, only DeBaca and Los Alamos have substantial spread uh, the rest of the counties in New Mexico have high levels of spread. And given that we're hoping to get down in that uh, second column from the right, total cases per 100,000 persons, 
that needs to be pretty much below 14 to turn orange and in the seven or eight range to turn yellow. yellow. And so we are a long way away. And with uh, some of our smaller counties having really high case rates right now. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, on testing, a little bit more bad news. We did a great job increasing our testing to keep up with a high test positivity rate. The green line is our target, which is now at 7.5. And again, looking to the right side of the curve, we were above our target. We uh, New Mexicans responded by being more aware and getting more testing. And if we could point out that right end of the curve there, we came down below the green line, but just yesterday went back above it on a seven day rolling average. So again, significant emphasis here on being tested. When we get above that green line, that means we don't really feel confident we have a handle <clears throat> on all the cases here in New Mexico. And so uh, we'll go through those guidelines in a second. Next slide, please. On the other hand, some good news. Uh, we're down to a new, another new uh, record low turnaround time for test results. You can see there uh, all the data is here, but that 1.29 with the uh, green explosion around it, green being good. Uh, we're doing well there. So test results coming back much quicker. If you're looking for just screening testing for work, uh, you know, Vault is a good option where you can do it on a Monday and get the results on a Friday and have those uh, to allow you to continue to work another week. So, uh, but nonetheless, great turnaround times. And we wanna thank all of the labs listed here for doing such a wonderful job getting those test results in. And you can see from the beginning of the pandemic, uh, well, that's not true. Since December, our average turnaround time was 2.62 days. And you know, it's about, oh, I don't know, two days and 14 hours. Now we're down to one day and, oh, something like three and a half hours, or, or sorry, something like six and a half hours. So that's great progress and uh, means we get our results back. We can continue to isolate if we're positive and do that contact tracing even quicker. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, so reminder, get tested if you have symptoms. If you don't have symptoms, but you know you're in close contact with someone who turned positive uh, or you work in a high-risk situation uh, and you think that uh, there's a, there are sick people coming to work, which shouldn't happen, uh, just regardless of your vaccination status, vac a lot of people are still telling me that I'm vaccinated, so I don't need to worry. That isn't true. We had new data, as you all know, for Massachusetts back in, uh, it was um, August, or sorry, July. And so please consider it your responsibility to get tested if you're suspicious, if you're sick, have contact with someone or suspicious you might have contracted coronavirus, because you can spread it to other people without knowing you have it yourself. Next slide, please. Uh, on the hospital front, things also not uh, very positive. We continue to skate along this line of uh, <clears throat> crisis standards of care, but the fact that this is going on at this level is becoming incredibly stressful for hospitals. We talked in July about an impending nursing shortage, with which became clearly a factor in August that has persisted. Uh, the state is making some efforts to contract for bringing more nurses into the state, but the problem is 
that the national nursing pool is very, very lean right now. And so even the agencies we can contract with to bring new nurses don't really have a lot of nurses that they can send us prices per hour for what are called traveler nurses or traveling nurses have skyrocketed. And so our hospital uh, hospital personnel are incredibly exhausted, discouraged, and frustrated, frankly, that they are now managing a pandemic and working extra shifts and endangering their own health uh, for what has become a preventable illness. Uh, I'll show you some of that data, the latest data in a minute, but um, uh, this is really a serious problem and a serious crisis. And we've got a little news clip we're gonna show you in a few minutes that illustrates that. Next slide, please. <clears throat> Again, 17 available ICU beds in the whole state, those fill up every day. And so by the end of the day, we usually have zero or one. And medical beds a little bit better. We were around 50 some last week, we're up to 67, but still it's a major uh, crush uh, to our hospitals, trying to manage uh, so many people, hospitals still expanding, taking care of people in the hallways and still having to figure out how to get people needing critical care to the right situations, which is not always possible as we've been saying for weeks. Next slide, please. Uh, Again, since reporters asked this, we thought we'd give you a few more snapshots. Uh, last week, 81 patients transferred out of state for their hospitalization. Uh, only two patients transferred in. Uh, New Mexico tends to be the tightest um, hospital bed state in our region, and that creates significant problems. And this isn't just for unvaccinated New Mexicans being admitted for COVID or even vaccinated uh, patients being admitted for COVID, which is much less frequent. This is for everyone. Uh, when hospital beds are full, they're full for everyone. Next slide, please. Uh, and then just those statistics, 77% uh, of cases in the past four weeks in vaccinated people, 23% in unvaxxed individuals, uh, 85, almost 86% of hospitalizations, in unvaccinated people and over 90% of our deaths are occurring in unvaccinated people. And that middle orange segment of the graph is our problem right now, is the large number of people being hospitalized who are unvaccinated and overwhelming our healthcare system even further. Next slide, please. Uh, this is a story uh, about a woman and her, her parents who are vacationing here in New Mexico. Uh, you'll hear her tell the story, so I won't repeat it. And why don't we, uh, Brianna, just cut to that video and, and show uh, this news clip. This is Ken Early of Oklahoma City, Elizabeth's dad. Ken's family and Ken were in Taos, New Mexico with the family for a vacation when he had a heart attack in the <clears throat> middle of a supermarket there. I saw my mother kind of, you know, flagging me down and my father I could see on the floor. Elizabeth Kaliopoulos rushed over to her father. I immediately went in and did CPR. Were you performing CPR on the floor of the supermarket? Yes. 
Yeah, yeah. The ambulance arrived and rushed Ken Early to the local hospital, but everyone quickly realized the rural hospital didn't have the capabilities to care for Ken's dire condition. The idea was let's get him medevaced to uh, Oklahoma City. That was what we had to do and no hospital rooms, not one ICU bed that could take my dad. They tried other states. They looked in New Mexico. There was not a single hospital bed ICU that could take my father in Kansas, nothing in Arizona, nothing in Texas, nothing. Then his condition started to worsen. He started getting a fever. The morning at 830, the doctor just came in to the room with that look on her face where you just know, you know, that it's bad news. Ken Early, a beloved husband and father, a retired CPA who loved to travel and wear funny socks, passed away in Taos, New Mexico. And it's heartbreaking to me. I just feel like we're in some kind of human crisis. Because people will not get vaccinated, because people will not wear their masks, uh, this happened to our family. In the past month, according to the state health department, more than 90% of hospitalized COVID patients were not fully vaccinated. My father was vaccinated. My mother was vaccinated. My husband and I were all vaccinated. Elizabeth telling me taking COVID precautions could also be freeing up a hospital bed for someone else, like her dad. And if you care about your neighbor, if you care about your uh, parent, your grandparent, please just get vaccinated. Maybe my father would have, have, have died anyway. Maybe he would have died in Oklahoma, but he would have died in Oklahoma. And Elizabeth says that is what her father would have wanted. Now, I want to show you all of these numbers here. At last check, out of all of our four major hospital systems in the metro, there are three available ICU beds. We asked all of the hospitals about the current state. SSM told me it is not uncommon to have 50 transfer requests on their waiting list and more than two dozen already holding in their ER. Guys, back to you. Okay, thanks, Brianna. We can go back to the slides. I, I would echo uh, the comments of uh, the daughter Elizabeth here as well. You know, we're, we have hospitals uh, who turned away over 70 requests for transfer uh, in the past week, a single hospital, and it's not an Albuquerque hospital. It's a rural hospital that acts as a catchment and a, and a higher level facility for their region. So we really are in gridlock. Uh, we really are in a crisis situation. Uh, we should remember our healthcare workers uh, and out of respect for them, really uh, seriously reconsider for not vaccinated, uh, getting that, getting those shots. Next slide. Uh, how are we doing with New Mexico hospitals? We're doing pretty well. The line here, uh, not the bar, but the line shows you the percent of hospitals reporting. And uh, uh, through uh, earlier this week, uh, we dipped a little bit below. We only have uh, <clears throat> uh, 50 or so hospitals in the state. We had five that did not report this week, so just just a little bit up uh, below below 90 percent. But of the ones that reported, 89 percent of New Mexico's hospital employees are fully vaccinated. Three percent are partially vaccinated. Uh, those exemptions that are uh, approved and they're done by the the hospital institutions themselves, they provide approval. 7% uh, 
and 1% remain unvaccinated. What are hospitals doing with those? Many of these folks are actually using up their paid time off and will, and once that runs out, if unvaccinated, will actually uh, be dismissed from their facilities. So 99% of folks either vaccinated or with an exemption is pretty good. And now after this grace period, letting people adapt to and set up their reporting systems for getting this information to the Department of Health, uh, we are sending out letters today fining, I believe five hospitals in the state for non-reporting. And so, but overall, it's a good report. And uh, most hospitals are reporting. And of the five this week uh, who didn't report, three of them actually had been reporting regularly. So we'll circle back with them. And the fines, I think the first uh, <clears throat> instance of non-reporting is $1,000. The second instance is 2000 The third is 5000 uh, The vast majority of our hospitals have figured out how to do this. And so we will be working with those non-reporting hospitals to report and they can the fine can be waived if they get their data to us immediately as well. Next slide, please. Uh, unfortunately, these numbers of deaths continue to get added week to week. Uh, you will recall that August 23rd when it was 12 deaths, uh, maybe Brianna, you could point to that. Uh, when it was uh, August 23rd, uh, yeah, it was 12, and then it went up to 22, and then it went up in the 30s, I think it was the 40s. So death certificates come in later, they need to be processed by doctors and funeral homes, sometimes hospitals. And so uh, unfortunately, the death toll uh, rising significantly, uh, those numbers are on a weekly basis, a new paragraph. And these are only deaths from COVID. It wouldn't count the gentleman we saw the video about who couldn't be transferred uh, because he did not have a primary or secondary diagnosis of coronavirus infection. Next slide. Treatments, a little bit of new uh, news on the horizon. We continue to do uh, well on the left with remdesivir, which is what we give to people admitted to the hospital, uh, an anti-COVID medication. And uh, those numbers of treatments vary almost directly with the number of patients. And the treatments are the number of actual treatments. So an individual case, I think it's either five or nine overall treatments. Uh, so most folks in hospitals now are being treated with remdesivir. On the right, you have two of the monoclonal antibodies that we're now using in our state, what we call BAM-EDI combination. We call it BAM-EDI because there's no one in the state who can pronounce both of the names of the drugs, including me and then Regeneron. And, and you can see we're keeping up treatments. I would like to see those treatments higher. I'd like to see every person with symptoms who's over 64 or is overweight or has a risk factor. I'd love to, love to see every single person treated. That's something we can do to drastically lower our hospitalization rate. We'll lower hospitalizations by as much as three quarters. Next slide. Uh, I did want to give a shout out to a couple systems that have been notable, and I'm sorry we're late getting this data to you, but in particular, uh, these three hospitals have really been leading the state. Uh, Presbyterian, it's their whole healthcare system, and there's a whole team of people working in their hospitals all over the state that includes Dr. Denise Gonzalez, who's been on this uh, press conference in the past, Aaron Pierce. Jennifer Ellis, Elizabeth Holgan, 
uh, Stacy Dalton, and I won't pronounce this one right, but I believe it's Tatanya Yellick. And so thanks to all of you who've worked so hard to give life-saving treatment, hospitalization uh, saving treatment to uh, many New Mexico patients in order to fundamentally prevent them from being admitted to the hospital. Uh, David Shaw out at Norley Hospital in the southern part of the state, much, much smaller hospital, doing a yeoman's job of delivering BAM. He tells me that Alondra Hayes is a nurse that stepped up to the plate, ran this program, and they've had great success and really strongly believe it has enabled them to get through this COVID crisis by reducing the number of people. And lastly, and I don't have names today, but we'll do it next week, Gerald Champion Regional Medical Center, also one of the highest groups in terms of uh, antibodies delivered last week. We thank you. Uh, some of you may think that I'm trying to get a competition going here between hospital systems to get their names on this list. And if that worked, then I would, I'd be glad to admit that I had done that on purpose. Next slide. Uh, we got a couple questions in advance. Thanks to those of you who send them uh, uh, in an advance. There's a new drug, Malnipiravir. I practiced that extensively in the last hour. Uh, it comes in pill form. This is really, really big news. It's currently in phase three trials, which is the last phase of a research protocol. So that's good. And their manufacturer claims uh, that hospitalization and death risks are reduced about 50% for mild to moderate infections. So not as good as monoclonal antibodies, it, 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 but it takes the hospitalization risk down from about 14% to 7%, but still good. And it's a pill. So this could be something that many of us could just have immediate access without the need of an IV or subcutaneous injection. Uh, the makers of this drug uh, say they plan to submit it for emergency use authorization against, again, no published study data. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes we have to manage what's new and different in COVID treatments or vaccines by press releases. Uh, we always take a look at the data ourselves before okaying it for New Mexicans. But this could be a real breakthrough in terms of on the ground treatment for people who have uh, get tested early, find out they're positive, and uh, the criteria for treatment have not yet been uh, vetted, so I don't have those. It may be similar to BAM, it might be a broader group. But it is for people, I believe, with just mild to moderate symptoms of COVID. Next slide. So closing out here, and I know we've run long, I predicted this would take an hour and that's where we're at. Uh, we're still dealing with Delta, 100% of cases, it's at least twice as infectious. So we all need to be at least twice as careful, if not four times as careful. Uh, get tested, get treatment, really be careful indoors. Don't yield to peel pressure to, to, sorry, to peer pressure to take those masks off indoors. Keep them on unless you're in your own home. It's the highest rate of spread of COVID right now is in these indoor settings. And please, for the sake of our healthcare workers in the state of New Mexico, please get vaccinated. I've just talked to too many people that say as soon as this curve comes down, they're stepping back from their whole healthcare career. They just can't do it anymore. And as New Mexicans, it's important we invest in the health of our healthcare workers and the sanity of our healthcare workers. So please step up, uh, make that uh, get go online, register for a vaccination today.
And with that, I think I'm going to turn it back over to you, Hannah, to field questions. Remember, uh, Ricky Cerna is here today, and he says uh, he would be delighted to answer questions uh, about unemployment, and uh, he's counting on you not to ask too many hard ones. But I tell them he should not count on that because you do such a good job asking us a lot of hard questions. So with that, Hannah. <laughs> thanks, Dr. Scrace. Um, all right, thanks to all of our principals. And as usual, we'll take questions the order in which they appear. So please raise your hand if you'd like to ask a question uh, when I call on you, if you wouldn't mind just repeating the name of your outlet so our panelists are aware of who's asking and where you're from. And as a quick reminder for those who might be newer to our conferences, we're not going to limit things to one question per person. So we will cycle through multiple times as needed. Please just do ask one question at a time to allow our principals to focus and to offer a clear answer. So with that, we will begin with Susan Montoya Bryan, followed by Julia Goldberg, and then Dan McKay. Susan, you should be able to talk and ask your question. Hi, yes, good afternoon, and thanks for taking the time to, to talk with us uh, today again. And my first question is for you, Dr. Strace. I think you can answer this. Uh, you noted the Delta Plateau, right, and the high level of community spread around the state. And I think, in fact, that's higher for some counties than last. So can you talk to us a little about the increasing number of infections among vaccinated people? I see the latest report shows that we now have up to 23% of cases in the last four weeks, and that's up from the 14.8 reported last week. So that seems like a significant increase. Tell us what's going on there. Yeah, those are all great topics and I'll, I'll take them one by one. I should have said and didn't say that in particular, that plateau is not just necessarily a plateau across the state as you observed, and particularly in the Northwest where the hospitals are really, really, really uh, overwhelmed, uh, we're seeing an, a significant uptick. Other areas of the state either flat, but nobody's really going downward. Uh, second, with respect to uh, <clears throat> the Delta variant and and uh, what we're seeing there, I think that uh, the uh, it is more infectious, and there is a, a mathematical model about <clears throat> you know the more people you have vaccinated, the higher a percent of people uh, who have COVID will be uh, will be vaccinated just because you know there's now almost if you think one shot there's four vaccinated people for every one unvaccinated so if you compared the rates of disease it's actually uh, quite a bit higher in unvaccinated people uh, being one fifth of the population versus uh, at least the vaccinated vaccinated group, which is smaller. So mathematically, we'll see that go up. Also, and I'm not gonna bring up the curve on the screen today, but the curve is choppy. It has not settled down the way we'd like to see it. So we see these 14% and these 23%, but it tends to go back and forth. So I can't really comment on just the difference between two weeks, but I, I, I will tell you, we watch it really, really uh, closely as well. I think the important thing also we're observing is that we're seeing a lot of relatively otherwise healthy people uh, in the hospital with un, who are unvaccinated with COVID and some generally much sicker patients. And this is anecdotal information from our hospitals, people who are already sick, who 
may be the ones with weakened immune systems who uh, are vaccinated and have acquired the disease. So it's still, there's still just an overwhelming imperative to be vaccinated if you want to protect yourself, your family, kids in New Mexico, we now, we now know have been protected by adults in New Mexico being vaccinated. So uh, I don't know if I covered every one of your questions. I dropped my pen on the floor and I was trying to write them down. But if, uh, if you have any, if I didn't, you're welcome to remind me. And um, can I add something to that? Sure, of course. Response? Okay, so the other thing I wanted to add too is that, um, you know, it's also that, you know, we have a Delta that's twice as infectious, right? And we also have more people like not masked. And so it's the same as that, like, um, I don't know, some people have said it's like a hurricane um, kind of analogy. So that when, you know, if you, even if you're vaccinated, and you go into a whole crowd and there's tons of people with COVID, you know, you will still have a breakthrough case. The important thing though, and can I just share my screen from the vaccine data set slide sets? Um, these, this, uh, th this piece about, you know, vaccine cases, like uh, this is from September 27th, but just showing that even though you have some breakthrough cases, you're still having a reduced rate of hospitalizations and death. And that's really what the vaccines are most effective for um, helping us to do is preventing hospitalizations and deaths. So even though there's some breakthrough cases, it's also the, the other pieces of, you know, COVID opening up, there's like state fair, there's balloon fiesta, there's different things going on that um, can sometimes overwhelm you know, your system, so. I also thought of one other thing that we haven't talked about here yet, so it might be worth bringing up just a theory, but it's a theory that some of the booster recommendations are based on. And that is that the vaccine efficacy may decline a little bit over time, which is why we need a booster. Remember, New Mexico came uh, barreling out of the gate. We, we vaccinated, a, a, we were number one in the country for a really long time, so it makes sense to me that one possible explanation, I don't have strong data for this, is that we're getting to the end of that, oh, eight month, nine month period uh, where maybe a where a booster is needed. And so we, we'd expect to see, if that's, if that's a factor, we'd expect to see more cases in vaccinated people sooner than other states because of that, because we did such a great job from the very beginning. I mean, as an example, you can divide the, the time we've been vaccinating people into two periods, the first five months and the last five months. And at least for Pfizer, 68.5% um, of the second doses we gave were in the first five months. So more than two thirds in the first half. So not sure about that. I think there'll be more data that'll come out over time, but that could be a factor as well. All right, next we have Julia Goldberg. Julia, you should be allowed to ask your question now. Thank you, Hannah. This is uh, Julia Goldberg from the Santa Fe Reporter, and thank you for taking my question. I wanted to follow up on um, the emergency authorization request for children ages five to 11. Um, two quick things. Under, if it's, if it's being utilized under emergency use, would New Mexico's immunization exemption statute for schools be applicable? And if not, um, Dr. Space, I'm wondering if you anticipate there would be a public health order that sort of spoke to that 
issue. I've noted that it, that the number of parents seeking that exemption for other vaccinations has been on a pretty steady rise. And I don't know what sort of indicator um, that gives. I know you showed the statistics, Dr. Patajon. I think they were national statistics from the Kaiser Foundation, but they went by a little bit quickly. But I didn't know if you thought New Mexico was sort of in similar or if we might have a higher rate of um, lack of uptake because we've seen that increase in exemptions. Uh, I hope that makes sense. Thanks. No, it does. I'm Laurel will probably come in on this as well. I think, you know, I only know there may be more, but I know that I've heard that Los Angeles County has made vaccination mandatory in schools for eligible students. Uh, but I think the exemption rule would apply there. You know, New Mexico laws would continue to apply. Uh, you know, exemption status would continue to apply. I, I can't see our state uh, mandating something and removing exemptions allowed for matters of conscience in the law. Uh, on the other hand, I think all of us want to do everything we possibly can to make our schools as safe as we possibly can for our children. And so I think, uh, so for example, we would not likely, and I, uh, I haven't had a conversation with the governor about this, but our past history would indicate that we wouldn't mandate vaccine for kids returning to school, for example, in the fall, if it was still on EUA status. But, and I think that that decision-making process to decide to add um, a, a series of COVID vaccinations for school-age kids would go through the same rigorous data analysis and evaluation and decision-making process that the relatively long list of other vaccinations that kids have to have to get into school has gone through. So I don't anticipate preempting uh, the way we do things um, for uh, the new COVID vaccine in kids. But boy, we, we, will, we will be strongly urging every parent and every child to consider the vaccine. Laura. Yeah, so I do have update on, um, thanks for all your questions, Julia. They're always really hard and good. <laughs> um, so let me just share with you um, the, the update we have on the vaccine exemptions. Actually, we had that in our provider call today. People had asked that question as well last week. So um, the update is that the DOH doesn't provide any medical or re religious exemptions for the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, we only provide, um, the, the, our immunization program only provides exemptions for school required vaccines. And then individual employers need to develop their own process for medical or religious exemptions for the vaccine. And sometimes providers may be called on to provide those exemptions. And then regarding um, regarding the EUA process, I'm not, I'm not sure the question was about whether or not the EUA would, uh, you mean the, the actual process would uh, cause people to want to get vaccinated? Or I'm sorry, I'm just can you clarify that question? Sure. I just, the last time I looked, the number of parents that have been requesting exemption for school vaccinations had been on the rise. And I was curious if you anticipated that that was sort of a predictor of how parents might feel about one under an emergency use authorization and how, in fact, that state statute for students intersected with a vaccine under emergency use authorization, because I don't, I'm not yeah. Okay. That That's a really good question. Then, so we did look at that. We did look at vaccine 
uptake before and after, like once the EUA turned into not an EUA and when the FDA was fully approved. And we really didn't see much difference in uptake on that. We kind of have this feeling that maybe parents aren't looking as closely at the EUA as we thought they would, not, not really sure. But what we found is, is that um, the most of the parents that we are talking to are are really concerned about the safety and efficacy data. And then if you look at, can I just share my screen again for like how they do this, all the whole process. If you look at this whole process of, oh, whoops. If you look at the whole process of, oh, whoa, no, where's that go? Okay, here it is. If you look at the whole process of how the EUA even gets, you know, gets processed with first the recommendations by the vaccine and real, um, related biological product advisory committee, you know, you have to do a whole bunch of scientific safety and efficacy uh, trials in order to get to this point. And then the fact that then you have to get it reviewed by the FDA and then the um, advisory committee on immunization practices, and then the CDC and then the medical advisory team. I think that, you know, the New Mexico one, I think that it's, it's a reassuring thing for us to say, these vaccines have to go through really rigorous safety and efficacy trials in order for them even to be considered. So I think that if there is a key message out to parents is that these are really well studied. And then now with millions of doses being given for 12 to 17 year olds, right, we have a lot of safety data. Yeah, one promising sign too, Julia, is we're over 80% of adults now, 18 and over, have had a shot. And that's a lot higher than some of the, you know, if, uh, you know, the, some of the vaccine exemption requests, you know, minus one. So, I think I think we we have a shot. Um, sorry for the fun. We have a shot at a higher vaccination rate for kids because of this. And I think I think the other thing there's my favorite proverb is a Mexican proverb, and it says, "The bull always looks different when you enter the ring." So I guess I'm not as interested in what parents think they might do if a vaccine becomes available. I think once the vaccine uh, becomes available, all parents are going to have to work with their kids to make this choice between the benefits and, you know, the upside and downside of getting the vaccine and the upside and downside of not getting the vaccine. So I, I think it's nice that the data is trending, that whatever it was, 28 to 33% or something, we'll get it right away. But I think we'll get different data when the vaccine is finally approved for use. Thank you. All right, next we have Dan McKay. Dan, you should be able to ask your question. Hi, this is Dan with the Albuquerque Journal. Um, it, can you address, given the uh, plateau in cases and the situation you described in hospitals, whether you... Um, any of you anticipate changes in the public health order, um, the one that outlines mask mandates and so on? Um, I, I think that it's due to expire at the end of next week. Thank you. That is correct, Dan. Uh, a great question. The order is set to expire. I think. I think the uh, there are two factors here. One is on the helping the hospital side. Uh, We've been talking and debating about the declaration of crisis standards of care uh, for a couple of weeks. I think when we thought we were 
we were going over the peak and then coming back down, we'd make it through. But that that plateau that we're in right now is clearly calling that question again. So we're discussing that. I think in terms of suppressing, you know, adding additional restrictions to change behavior to try to reduce hospitalizations. Uh, it's funny because the vaccine itself is such a potent tool that it would take an awful lot of other things added up to get even halfway there. And so, and I think we've talked at these press conferences about, and I think I think the governor would agree that what we really need to figure out is longer term solutions to manage this pandemic, things we can live with for a year or two or three rather than flicking on-off switches for the mandates. I would love it. You know, and then the last thing is, you know, we have a mass mandate for indoors, but you know, it's not like everyone is doing that. So uh, I'm not sure that additional mandates would add all that much when we don't have uh, New Mexicans following the most scientifically proven basic uh, effective, you know, things that every individual can do short of vaccine. So I, you know, I'm sort of painting a picture on both sides and that's because I'm probably in the middle on this right now. We just continue to call on all New Mexicans to do what it says in the pub existing public health orders and to be vaccinated. So I don't, I don't have a preview of coming attractions for the public health order for next Friday, but uh, at this point, but we're, we're, we always talk at length about are there things we could do that we think would make a difference. All right, thanks everybody. And then I just see Robert. Um, and then if anybody else has already asked a question would like to ask again, you can raise your hand. Um, perfect, Julia. Uh, all right, so Robert, go for it. Uh, thank you, Robert Knott, Santa Fe, New Mexican. Thank you for doing this, Hannah. Thanks for helping me get on board and it's good to see you all. Um, I have a couple of questions. I don't mind you circling back if others are waiting. So, so um, I guess I'll throw this at Dr. Scrace. Um, you know, uh, I can't speak for we, I want to, I want to say we see, we think, but it's just me watching this like we all are. But I'm just wondering when you look back, where are we 19 months into this pandemic compared to some of the highs and lows before? Because it still seems like, well, you said the word crisis. It still seems like we're in trouble. I'm, I'm sort of trying to get a sense of, where are we right now in your view? Um, are things as bad as they've been when they were at their worst? Yeah, I, that's a great question. And I think uh, our epi curve, and maybe Brianna, you can bring up that standard epi curve slide on the screen, is a little misleading because it looks like if you look at, if you squint at it, you know, we only have half the number of cases now or a third that we had when we were at our peak, but things, have fairly drastically changed. One, we have a lot less nursing staff available in the state than we did before. And that is an enormous rate limiting factor. So, uh, you know, somehow we got through that week with, uh, you know, 1,800 cases or more. Uh, but right now uh, we've got in this much, much smaller peak, one, less nurses, two, a lot, lot more people in the hospital, sicker people in the hospital. And there's a way to measure that. And our hospital partners tell us, it's called case mix index or acuity index. 
that that uh, case mix is the highest it's ever been. And we believe that a good part of that, although we don't have hard data, is from people who delayed care for diabetes, heart disease, lung disease, what, you know, high blood pressure, whatever it is, delayed that care and now uh, developed complications as a result. And so I think uh, Mike Ciccarelli, who runs our hub and spoke hospital meeting said uh, on Tuesday, it was the most difficult meeting they'd ever had. And that folks are, uh, are really frustrated and exhausted and I do think there's that psychological element of the first wave where you're fighting back this horrible uh, pandemic viral infection that's killing people and hospitalizing people. And you really don't have too much in the way of treatment or, or prevention. And now with vaccines that people aren't taking and preventive treatments like monoclonal antibodies that people aren't taking, that's very, very frustrating for healthcare workers. Preventable disease is more frustrating and so, I think I would say those are the factors. And then, you know, the other thing to think about that I think about a lot is there's this whole science of crisis management, you know, uh, what they're doing in Louisiana with uh, hurricane damage, you know, what happens after a plane crash. But those those efforts last from a couple days to a couple months. And nobody for 100 years has had to go through you know, an 18 month crisis like this, least of all hospital administrators. And that you can only kind of encourage people so much to hang in there and, you know, imagine that after 18 months. And so I understand I've got some people I really respect deeply who just can't, don't feel like they can continue doing this physician work or nursing work anymore because of the, the relentless nature of the strain. So I think if you asked our hospital leadership, they would say it is as bad now as when we had twice as many cases in the hospital because we don't have room uh, for the ones who are taking care of now. Thank you. I have follow-ups, but I can wait. Okay. All right, thanks, uh, Robert. Somebody, Hannah, oh, we need much. a question for Ricky Cerna. I mean, he presented all those slides and, and somebody must want, I mean, we had some reporters here who covered the economy. Uh, this is sort of the doorway to uh, rebuilding an important part of our economy. So just a little pitch, Julia, you don't, you don't have to ask an employment question, but I think Julia is next. Yep, Julia, your turn, go for it. Okay, I, I apologize. I don't, I don't have an unemployment question at the ready. Um, I was hoping I could follow up with Dr. Patahon for something you explained last week that I didn't understand at the time and felt confident I would be able to figure out in the interim, but still don't understand. And it's from the um, the weekly equity vaccine equity report, uh, page twenty four, where it shows the geographic vaccine disparity. Um, and you're muted, Dr. Patahan. Laura, I can bring that up for you so you don't have to do it. Oh, okay, great. Thanks. Okay. So so the explanation for how to read those slides, and I just want to make sure I understand it so that I can um, translate the data, is that the example is given for San Juan County that the share of vaccination for Native Americans is 23.3% higher than the share or proportion of the population. So when I look at the state vaccine dashboard, 71.9% of people in San Juan County are fully vaccinated. The Census Bureau indicates that about half of San Juan County identifies as Native American. I still don't understand what 
23.3% higher than what, than 50% of the population? Is that what that's saying? And how does that relate to the 71.9% who are vaccinated? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, like, it's yeah. okay. It's, it's, right. it's, it's, I know it's confusing for us too sometimes. So, um, so basically what it, what that, that chart does, it takes the cumulative share. So like, um, I, I wonder if I have, a, I, I might have a, um, something I can pull up for you that actually has the actual numbers. So what it, what we do is that we take the, the numbers of like everyone in San Juan County who has been vaccinated, right? So let's say there's a hundred people who are vaccinated in San Juan County, and and uh, but but it's it's fifty percent of those people are fifty uh, percent of the people are are Hispanic in that county, right? And I'm just making it up, but like maybe what I'll do is I'll can you come back to me? I'll actually pull up the actual numbers because I think that helps a lot to have you understand like. And, and it helps me to understand too, because it's the numbers, but it's actually that, that cumulative number is like, so if more people who are Native American get vaccinated, right, versus Hispanic or white populations, then, then that means that the, pop, the cumulative share of the vaccine will be more for people who are, are American Indian. Does that make sense or Native American? Does that make sense? Um, maybe I'll pull that up. I'll come back to me. I'm going to pull that um, the actual data up. Uh, okay, thanks. Julia, the way I think of it is a positive number is good. And <laughs> we're, we're winning the war on healthcare disparities in the state by really getting to, uh, you know, race and ethnicity groups that are have been under-vaccinated. I, you, said that last, number, you said that last week. Okay. You said that last week, and you said that the color, the, the darker the color, the better of the math. I just was trying to understand what it meant for something to be 23.3% higher than the share of something. And I thought if I looked at raw numbers from the census, I would be okay. able to then do the math, but I, I couldn't. Good try though. <laughs> All right, uh, next we have Susan. Go ahead, Susan. Hi, yes. Susan, you're on mute. Sorry, Susan, I tried to unmute you at the same time. You, All right, there we go. All right, this question is actually for Secretary Cernum. So, you know, we, we know every job in New Mexico counts, right? And I noticed there were a lot of postings for, for healthcare in particular. So what kind of conversations were had at Workforce Solutions about the folks that are going to lose their jobs due to the vaccine mandates? You know, are there any particular things that the state is looking at and trying to get them placed or, or just tell us a little bit about how those discussions went. Thank you. Thanks for that. And uh, for responding to uh, David's plea here for a difficult question. <clears throat> um, you know, at, at this time, we, we, we have not tracked that information. Um, so we've not collected information on what the impact to vaccinations and testing requirements has been for healthcare providers. Um, but certainly, uh, it, it's it's definitely of interest of ours to understand where placement will occur, not only immediately, but following the public health orders. We certainly want to ensure that these workers, primarily in healthcare, where the need is high and has been high for many, many years, pre, pre-pandemic for sure, so that they don't leave the state of New Mexico and they continue to practice here. Um, but 
um, it's uh, the the question really does drive an interest now for us to understand what the impact has been, and certainly ensuring that there there isn't going to be any you know relocation outside of the state to do that. Although it's becoming increasingly difficult to work in that field without being vaccinated or testing on a regular basis, so um, <clears throat> uh, we're we're hopeful, of course, that. Uh, the impact is small and and that it's uh, it's something that we can turn around very quickly after those requirements are lifted. All right, thanks so much. And next we have Chris McKee. Uh, Chris, you should be able to ask your question. Okay, I think you guys can hear me. So thank you very much. Um, I also had a question for Acting uh, Director, Acting Secretary Ricky Cernow. Um This is in relation to, to just the raw total unemployment numbers. Um, I think anecdotally, we heard in a lot of the months and weeks leading up to the sort of expiration of benefits that once those benefits expire, people are going to come rushing back into the workforce. And I know you did present some data there, but I guess I just wanted to generally ask, is that really what we're seeing? Are we seeing this sort of rush back to work? And if we're not, maybe why not? We, we're having discussions with employers to really understand that. Um, as I mentioned yesterday, we had discussions with hotel and restaurant owners, and, uh, and certainly they would answer that question um, this way. They, they still struggle to find the workforce to come in and, and, um, and work, even though they've made several attempts to uh, add additional perks from healthcare benefits, healthcare consultation resources to increased wages. So certainly we're coming up with creative solutions that address what we understand are some of the barriers to why New Mexicans and, and I think workers across the nation have yet to return at that rate we all anticipated. They include, um, they include barriers with healthcare. Um, of course, the public health orders still pose um, a, a concern to a lot of workers who are waiting until they feel as though it's safer to return to the workforce. There are barriers related to childcare that we're working with ECECD and our colleagues there to really identify where those childcare deserts are in the state, um, how we can create um, some toolkits to really help those communities ramp up in their ability to provide childcare assistance um, to, to workers. And we also know that the pandemic, which prompted a tremendous amount of telework is really creating a lot of different options for workers or at least the desire uh, to work in a very different setting that they did previously. So um, that coming with that third uh, barrier is the opportunity for a lot of workers to explore career opportunities outside of the state without having to relocate. Uh, you may see now a, a number of employers outside of the state of New Mexico offering work opportunities remotely to individuals across the nation and that, that, of course, is playing itself out as a, as a barrier for a lot of workers who right now can't provide those telework, remote, or hybrid opportunities to workers. All right. Thanks so much, Ricky. And I know, Robert, you said you had a couple questions yet you wanted to ask. Yes, I do. Thank you. Um, this is sort of a question for Dr. Scrace with the hope that Secretary Cerna will follow up on it. Uh, earlier, Dr. Scrace, you mentioned to Dan McKay and therefore to all of us that we have to we have to be ready for a one, two, three year plan 
for managing the pandemic. Um, could we be looking, as we've often all told ourselves, this will be over by July 4th, by Labor Day, by Christmas, you know, name your holiday. Could we be looking at a one, two or three year continuation on some level of this pandemic? And if that is so, sir, I'd like to hear from um, Superintendent, pardon me, Secretary Serna, is Workforce Solutions ready for that continued discussion for adapting to more unemployment or more job vacancies galore? Thank you both. Well, uh, just for the record, I started predicting that the pandemic would be over, when it would be over in May of uh, 2020, because you all kept asking. And I said September 30th, 2021, and it's not over. So that's number one. Two, which means you can't predict it. And I think had it not been for the Delta virus, uh, the Delta you know, mutation, uh, we might be in a completely different place uh, right now. But the trouble is the virus is fighting us. It mutates. It evades either treatments or, or vaccines or other things uh, over time. And so we have to keep up the fight. You know, I think people in, 20, in 1920, when the great influenza pandemic that killed tens of millions of people worldwide was over, people thought, well, Thank goodness we're done with influenza. Now here we are, 102 uh, years later, 101 years later. I got my flu shot um, a couple of days ago, and and so and I get one every year. And so I think that annual flu shot is an example of a way we as a society have learned to live with COVID. So I'm looking for a middle way that gets people back to work, but maybe they do wear masks at work to reduce their risk or or, uh, you know, reopens as much of the economy as we can, but we all exercise greater caution to stay in balance. And I don't think anybody knows, I mean, to specifically answer your question, I mean, basically what we're saying is, how much longer are we talking about here? I mean, if you'd asked that question 101 years ago, probably no one would have answered 101 years. Uh, for influenza. And so we just don't know, but vi the virus clearly has the ability to mutate. That's what viruses do. It, uh, it mutated into a much more infectious variant, which is now infecting vaccinated individuals. And so I think it will be a series of, if you will, punches and counter punches between uh, the virus and the rest of the world uh, trying to get this under control. But I don't think we can, I said a, a few weeks ago, we have to figure out what we can live with for two years and what we can't live with, you know, for a couple of years. Like, I don't think we can live with remote learning for two years, but, you know, maybe we could live with indoor masking. I mean, I just don't know. We have to wait and see. Maybe we can live with uh, more employers requiring vaccination just because they want to be successful employment workplaces and make sure their, you know, their work environment is safe for everybody coming back to work. So I'm not sure, but I I don't, I do think we have a, a longer road ahead of us. And that's why I think we're trying to rethink in terms of a long-term strategy rather than a, a, you know, a day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week or month-to-month, -month, mandates on, mandates off type of an approach. Thanks. Um, and by the way, we had a long discussion about this at modeling team, like a very, long discussion about that exact 
question yesterday with some really incredibly smart uh, modelers and others. And I think I represent the opinion of the group in general that we've got, this is gonna stretch out uh, uh, for a much further distance in front of us than we originally thought. Um, Robert, thanks for the question. Um, I think there's two pieces for us that, that we really got to understand and um, in, in two spaces that we need to anticipate in. Um, and I think the even the pandemic aside, um, this is going to change the workforce or the way the workforce operates for a really long time. And so what we're planning for is, uh, you know, conversations. How do we engage sectors of the workforce to really understand the changes that they've made and how that's going to impact their need for workers, how workers need to be trained and how they're going to be provided with work opportunities. There was a lot of automation that took place that's going to reduce the need for certain workers in some industry. There was adaptation that occurred that that's going to change the way workers inter intersect with customers or with stakeholders. So I think this is the start of a lengthy conversation about wages. There's no question that, that the pandemic has really done something to wages that would really occur over a period of time and, and what kind of risks that's going to present, you know, to, to employers uh, on all sizes. So we're having those conversations and, and we know that it's going to be a, a long road before we really truly get everyone on the same page about how we need to operate in, in terms of workforce, workforce development. Um, in terms of benefits, we've been we've been having this conversation for a long time. There was always a, a thought that perhaps after September or time before September 4th that uh, there'd be benefit extensions that could come our way. So we were ready. Uh, we've learned a lot about service, about communications with our constituents, about fraud, fraud prevention, staffing, you name it. I think the learning curve was steep, but surely we've done a lot of reflection about what we would need to do if Congress were to approve measures that provided additional benefits to New Mexicans. And um, I, I think we can do that um, without as much, um, you know, a chaos that occurred early on, which really did stem from a, a, a quick, a very robust and quick uptick in claimants. So uh, we are ready. We're having those conversations. Um, we're paying attention to what's happening on a national level and learning from uh, from what other states are doing and finding out about economic recovery. So we believe that we can we can adjust and pivot uh, very quickly. Thank you, sir. Can you confirm the number of job openings right now? Was it eighty thousand? Right, we were looking at uh, over 80, 80,000 openings. I believe is the number. Thank you. I have one last question, if I can go, but I will wait for others if they want to. Marilyn has her hand raised there, Hannah. Um, Marilyn, why don't you uh, go ahead and ask your question? You should be able to share now. Hello, thank you so much for taking my question. Um, I know that you touched on this earlier. Um, what is your thought about the new COVID-19 treatment pill? Um, and will New Mexico plan on using this? And it's said to be the only pill used to treat COVID. Is that true? Thank you. So right now there are zero pills that have proven to be effective and approved by the FDA to treat COVID. And we spent an awful lot of time in the last couple of weeks talking about uh, uh, other pills people are taking that are not approved by the FDA for COVID treatment. 
Uh, we, the way that the approval process works with the FDA is that the pharmaceutical companies keep this data highly secret and there. We have no access to it. And then they release these press releases that say, you know, they had 1,500 people in the trial and hospitalization rates uh, decreased from uh, 14% to 7%. But, in, but the FDA doesn't approve drugs based on press releases. And, and it's very similar to vaccines. They will go through that process for the EUA. I think that um, assuming that the, the federal government goes through its processes, it will be relatively easy uh, for the MAT to approve uh, the drug. And we would encourage its use. Just the simplicity of taking a pill rather than an IV injection uh, is very attractive and much easier to uh, you know, get across the finish line. There's some talk about states distributing the medication rather than the, the normal supply chain, uh, which usually signals that they don't think they'll have enough supply, which is unfortunate, but we'll see. So uh, we have our fingers crossed. It would be great to have a highly effective treatment that uh, people could take if they did develop um, COVID. We don't know what the criteria for treatment are because that wasn't in the press release. They said um, mild to moderate COVID. So once we have the data, which won't really occur till they apply for the EUA and then it becomes a public document, I can't tell you too much more, but I love the idea of having a pill that people could take um, for really early treatment for uh, when they get a positive test. And if they meet the criteria for the treatment, which we have no idea what those are just yet. Thank you. I think Laura, you've got a, a, a follow-up answer to Julia's math question. I do. I do have a follow-up math question answer. So let me pull that up for you, Julia. I had to do some quick math right now uh, to answer it, but here we go. Um, see, I hope this answers your question. So let me uh, give you a slide here. Um, so I, I put the maps on here so you could see this. So this is the San Juan disparity doses. And actually, I'm sorry, I probably didn't match up the exact map date with the date of this uh, the actual numbers, but I think you'll get the idea here. So um, here's San Juan County. And then this is, oops, sorry, here you go. This is um, race ethnicity here. Here's the total doses of vaccinations given, um, you know, by the date of 10-4-2021 for the San Juan County. Um, this is the total doses, the purple are the total doses administered per ethnic group, right? So um, for American Indian, Asian Pacific Islander, African American, Hispanic or Latino and white. So then that's, this is this data and the percent of vaccine to each um, racial ethnic group is D, which is the total administered doses here, divided by the total doses. So here you get 62% for American Indian, um, you know, so on and so forth here. Then we have then, we then look at the pop percent of population in the racial ethnic group. So that's F divided by E. So the population by race 12 and over and the county population 12 and over. And so then you get these numbers here. 
So let's just look at um, American Indian numbers. So that's 62% minus 39% is the disparity, what we call the disparity number. And in this case, you know, out of all the doses that were given, the majority of people who got the doses um, that were over, you know, over the whole group was the San Juan uh, American Indian, 23.4% difference. And then let's just look at Hispanic or Latino populations. That's negative 10% because that's the, um, you know, the 8.89% minus the percent of the population who actually could get the doses. So ideally, like everyone would get the same amount of doses as their as their racial ethnic group. But in this case, more people <clears throat> of the doses that were given, more doses were um, were for American Indian. And so, the way we use this map is to really look at. So in San in in San Juan County. Um, American Indian populations are doing great, so we don't have to worry as much about that group. IHS has done a great job building trust and, and the tribal leaders have done an amazing job also building trust in the population to get vaccines. But here we know Hispanic Latino populations are at negative 10 difference, and then white populations are at negative 13.56 difference. So we know those are certain populations that we need to work with more in order to gain trust and, and get vaccinated. So that's how we use the map. Um, I hope this explains it. Um, it, it does. I, I, think, I think I thought that I, I didn't realize I didn't have raw numbers for county by ethnicity group in the breakdown because the state gives it just for the statewide. So I think that's where I got confused. Yes, thank you very much. I get it. Awesome, there. okay. Good job, Laura. Great job, Dr. Um, P. All right, Robert, I think you still had another question, right? Yeah, um, sure. Thanks. Last one. Uh, Dr. Scree said that five hospitals had not reported employee vaccination rates. Would you remind us how many hospitals total there are in the state? And can you say which five hospitals those are? Uh, so I'll answer the second question first, which is no, because we really like to notify them. Uh, first, and uh, the, the, I think it's uh, I think there's some hospitals that I wouldn't normally think of as hospitals that are mainly like big urgent cares, but they might have a better two. I think the total is uh, it's it's right around fifty, and uh, I can uh, I can get that number in the next couple minutes and and get it over to have. Uh, Anna or somebody get it over to you. I want to say it's either 48 or 54, but I know that's kind of a, a difference between those two. I know it depends on the classification, but I, I can find that out. Thank so, you, uh, okay, all right. I don't see anybody else's hands, so I think we will wrap it up for today, but thank you all for your questions. And I will turn it back to our principals to close out if they would like. Let's start with Ricky. Any closing comments about the labor force or a message you wanna underscore in a minute or less, Ricky? We really just wanna underscore our ready.nm.gov 
website and initiative. Uh, it, it really is just a, a true one-stop resource for New Mexicans, both job seekers and employers to get connected with workforce opportunities uh, they're really looking uh, looking at. So uh, please visit the site, share broadly, and uh, if you have any questions, the toll-free number um, <clears throat> there is um, 800-303-3599. Otherwise, I want to thank you all for your time, attention, and your questions. Laura. Hey. Hi. So um, thanks so much for um, having us again today. It's also always awesome to answer your questions and to learn from you guys. I think we're co-learning as we kind of approach this pandemic. And I think that this is a long haul. And uh, we, our next step is the kids. So just um, thanks for all you're doing to kind of let people know the facts and, and get the information out there so we can get our kids vaccinated and protected as well. So thank you. And I, I would just say again that, uh, you know, most of us have a healthcare worker in our extended family or living on our street. Uh, you saw the number of job openings and healthcare is a big labor market in New Mexico. And we really want those younger people to stay in their roles. We want those older people to stay in their roles for a long period of time. They really need our support uh, today and every day until uh, we can empty out uh, some of these hospital beds and make room for you and me and our other family members who may have to go in for an appendectomy or you know, a blood clot or a heart attack as we saw today. So please uh, think about that. Think about your own health. Think about what you can do today, whether it be getting a vaccine, wearing a mask, whatever it takes to make room for yourself. If that helps you to think about it that way in the event that you should have a medical emergency. Uh, we appreciate everybody's diligence, the great questions. Thanks to our media partners for getting the word out. And if we can just redouble our messaging regarding uh, how much our healthcare um, workers in the state need our support right now, I think that helps all of them. The messages last week help, uh, the words that you got out and they will help again. So thank you very much and have a wonderful uh, day.